0: Me and my brother are uh, different from each other, opposites in, in, in most ways. Uh, for instance, this past week, I was talking to my mom who's here sitting in the service, and we were talking about when we were little kids and how we would handle things differently. For instance, my brother had an issue with, with lying. Um, when I say that, he didn't, he didn't lie. Uh, he would just blatantly tell the truth all the time in a lot of different contexts, um, or a lot of different contexts. So he would do something wrong in one room and my mom or dad wouldn't be in there, and he would feel so convicted that he would go to my mom and he would say, "I did such and such thing, right?" And he would just confess on himself, tell you know, tattle on himself, and he would get disciplined, however he needed to, however they decided to see fit. And for me, I was different. Uh, I could blatantly do something wrong in front of my mom, and she would look at me and say, "Drew, did you just do such and such thing?" And I would look at her back, and I would say, "No, mommy, I didn't do that, right." How many of y'all can resonate with one or two of those people? Okay, right, we're all somewhere in there. Uh, The reality is, is we all handle the concept of confession differently. And uh, last week, Rick began this acronym, this prayer acronym, ACTS, capital A, capital T, or capital C, capital T, capital S. And last week, he talked about the word adoration and how we're supposed to adore God in prayer. This week, we're talking about confession, which is C, right? Confession begins actually with sin um, and this understanding that... Even though me and my brother handled those situations differently, we both did wrong, right? We both did things that were wrong. That's the same is true for all of us today. Whether you're a boy or a girl or or a mom or dad or a husband or wife or just a man or a woman, we all do things that are wrong, right? Sin is a word that appears all throughout the Bible. It's like 800 times in the Old Testament sin is referred to and several hundred more times in the New Testament it's referred to. In the Old Testament, it's this Hebrew word, most of the times when you see it, there's a lot of different words, but one of the most consistent words is the word "hata." Hatah is really, if you boil that term down, it is an archery term that means to miss the mark. Most of you guys know this, you, 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 you understand at least a little bit of what sin is, but it means to miss the mark. And so when an archer would line up his shot, it meant that he missed it. He didn't hit what he was, what he was aiming at. It's something that all of us do. We all Miss the mark. God has set this standard that we are to live by his word. We all don't do it, right? Romans 3 verse 9 tells us that. Paul says, should we conclude that we Jews are better than other people? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. Later in that same chapter, verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is the great equalizer among people. It's a great equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, what kind of car you drive, how, much, how big your house is, what kind of clothes you wear, where you were born or who your mommy and daddy is. Everybody sins. Everybody messes up. Everybody misses the mark. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. One of the reasons I, I know I can stand up here and preach confidently is because I can look out at all of you and know you're just as messed up as me. You are. Because we're all messed up people. We all miss the mark. So knowing that we all sin. What do we do when we sin? Maybe if you're like a consistent churchgoer in here today, you're like, Drew, isn't this? This seems pretty elementary. This seems pretty basic. i would ask you one question. Why do you continue to sin? I mean, why can't you just do things perfectly? As Jesus tells us in the book of Luke, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why can't you do that? If it's so elementary, so basic. I would suggest that maybe we don't approach sin and confession in humility the way that the Bible teaches us to do so. Maybe for you this morning, maybe there is still growth that is needed in that area. Historically, confession has some pretty huge connotations to it. I mean, confession and the idea of penance, which is paying for that for that sin, is actually one of the major reasons that the Big C church split hundreds of years ago when Martin Luther nailed the 95 thesis to the door of the church at Gutenberg, thus starting Protestantism. I mean, we go to a bad you're in a Baptist church this morning, largely in part to that one singular moment where he said, confession is being handled wrong. So what exactly are we referring to or talking about when we're referring to confession? In the Greek, there's two I say there's two main words. There's a lot of words that, that, that we, we translate to confess, um, but there's two main words, which is exomologio, which means to confess or to offer place, praise, and homologio, which means to confess or to acknowledge. In the Hebrew, I'm gonna mention two more main words that we see all throughout the Old Testament, which is the word yada, which means to praise or confess, and then neged, which means to tell or have told. So if we boil that down, out of these words, we find different uses for different purposes for our in, one English word, confession or to confess so confession is the act what i'm going to say to this morning it's the act of acknowledging or telling about sin in our lives and I'll, I'll make the argument that it's absolutely necessary when it comes to walking in true freedom from sin and it's an essential element when it comes to our prayer life so how does confession work number one we could, we start by confessing to god And we do that through a couple of things. Number one, we recognize our sin and the separation it creates between us and God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he, which is Jesus Christ, or God, um, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar, basically. The first thing that we have to do is we have to see our sin. We have to recognize our sin. If you walk around in life and you look at other people and you think I'm better than them, let me, let me give you a wake-up call. You're not. You're as messed up as the people that are sitting to the left and the right of you this morning. Look, look look at those people for a second. Look at the people that are sitting to your left. Do it. Look at the people sitting on your right. Everybody sins, Right? You know what that reality is? It means they're messed up and it means you're messed up. It means we both need God, right? I mean, when, when it says all have fallen short of the glory of God, that means everybody. And so we have to start by seeing that sin. We have to start by recognizing sin in our lives. Sometimes that means sitting in reflection and saying, okay, God, I know that these areas of my life don't, well, I'm not living in accordance to your word. I know I'm doing some things in my life that don't line up with your word. And so we, we, we make some changes. We, we pray confession to God. Other times it means we sit in prayer and we go, God, reveal, reveal to me the, the areas in my life that I don't even recognize that I'm not living in accordance to your word. Oftentimes what I see happen in so many people's lives is we get so comfortable in sin that we don't even recognize it when it's sitting right in front of us. So we've got we've to see it. We've got to recognize it. We, we have to see the separation that it creates between us and God. Number two, we have to agree with God about that sin. So we recognize it, we see it, and then we agree with God about it. Those two Greek words both come from the Greek word mazile, which means to agree. So when we pray and we confess our sin to God, one of the very first things that we do in acknowledgement is we simply agree with God about that sin. You go, okay, God, I see this area of my life that's not the way that it's supposed to be. I agree with you about it. Normally in our, prayer life, in our prayer life, this sounds something like, okay, God, I know I've sinned. And I know I have sin in my life. And I know you have, you, you know I have sin in my life because you know me better than I know myself. And so God, in, my, in this moment, I'm just laying before you all of my mess-ups, which is all the sins we commit and the sins we omit, right? Normally we sin in two different ways. We, we, we either commit sins, which is like when we're gluttonous, we eat that extra scoop of ice cream that we shouldn't eat, right? Or we're greedy, which means we want something more than what we have. Or we're, we're lustful, which means we look at another human being with not good thoughts. Or we're prideful, which means that we look at other human beings with not good thoughts. Right? Commission, those are things that we do. They're, they're, they're sins that we commit. There's also sins that we do through omission, where we omit. We, we don't have a part of our lives, like when we should be thankful and we're not. Or, or when we have unbelief in our heart. Or when we don't honor and respect the Sabbath day. Like those are sins of omission and we have to understand, we have to see both and we have to agree with God about both of those sins, both of those types of sin. In the book of Ezra, chapter 9, Ezra learns of some sin going on amongst the Israelites. And you're like, Ezra, you preaching from Ezra today? Yes, I am. Um, I know you frequent it often. Ezra understood that there was a specific command for the Israelites not to intermarry with the people whom they were around. This people group that they were around. God had specifically told the Israelites, don't do this. Ezra opens his eyes. He realizes that all of these people are doing this. He's like, whoa, this inter- people are intermarrying. It's going on. And it breaks Ezra in this moment. He recognizes the sin. He sees the sin. And then he prays a prayer of confession in agreement to God about that sin. Check this out, he says, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift my face up to you. For our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. What's he doing here? He's acknowledging the sin and he's agreeing with God that it's wrong. He's saying, I see what you see about my my life and about our situation as Israelites. When we agree with God about sin, what we do in that moment is, is we are calling out the elephant in the room. God already knows your sin. He already knows your sin he knows your lustful thoughts he knows your greedy thoughts he knows your actions he knows your pride he knows your arrogance he knows all of that stuff he knows the prejudice in your heart like he knows those things he understands those things and when we agree with him we're calling the elephant out in the room we go god i see it the way you see it i see my life the way that you see my life i see my sin the way that you see my sin and i don't like it either and so it allows us to look at the same way or the same thing in the same way, which is all a part of the healing process, which leads us to number three, which is we let God do what he does. So we see our sin, we agree with God about the sin, and then we let God do what he does in regards to that sin. Verse John 1-9, to continue from verse seven and eight, he, he goes on, he says, if we confess our sins, he, which is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This part is it's, it's really simple, but it's really hard. We have to let God work in our lives. That's an active thing that we do. It's not a passive thing. We don't just sit back and expect God to do everything in our lives, right? When I was little, my mom would pick up after me, right? She would do my laundry, she would do the dishes, she would clean for me when I was really, really little. As I got older, I had to learn how to start doing those things. Now I have to pick up after myself because Christina is not my mom, so she doesn't do those things for me, right? Right? There, I have to be able to do stuff. I, I have work to do in this moment. I have to let God work in my life. Most of the time, though, what happens is instead of letting God do what he does, we try to take his place. We try to take his place, and we try to uh, pull ourselves up and get ourselves out of sin. We, we know, oh, I'm struggling with this, but I can, I can take over this moment, and I'll just change. I'll, I'll fix it which in turn makes us more self-reliant than God-reliant. And what, what's Jesus tell us to do? Jesus tells us to have childlike faith, where we trust God, we rely fully on our heavenly Father when it comes to sin in our life, because we have to trust that God is the one who heals us. I mean, think about the way that Paul addressed sin. It's one of the most consistent things that Paul teaches about in all of his, his letters. He writes about sin, he writes about confession, he writes about these things. Why? Because they were struggling with it. But what's he say? He says, it has no power over you. It's no longer your master. You're not a slave to this. Why? Because you don't belong to sin. You belong to somebody else. You belong to somebody who bought you at a price. God bought you at a price. And that price was extremely expensive. The most expensive thing that's ever been bought in the history of the world, which was Jesus Christ's life. It doesn't cheapen the gospel. It doesn't cheapen grace. It actually shows us that grace is super, super expensive. And so when we confess to God, we do that by acknowledging our sin, agreeing with God about that sin, and then we we have to let God do what God does, which is heal us. That, though, is only half of how we address sin in our lives. The other half that I'm going to mention this morning is far more uncomfortable, I'll be really honest. It's, It's far more uncomfortable, which is the other half is we confess it to others. You're like, nope, not doing that. I'm not about to go tell other people about sin in my life. I'm not about to go air my dirty laundry to anybody. Maybe you may be even thinking, okay, Drew, wouldn't it just be better if we just pretended like it didn't happen? Let's just, let's just pick this rug up. We'll just sweep all of our sin under that rug and we'll pretend like we're good, uh, godly people um, that come to First Baptist Jinx and we sit in our pews and we, you know, we put our hands in our pockets when we worship, Right? What I'm not telling you to do today is come up on stage and tell everybody about your sin. That's not what I'm asking you to do. We're not going to have open mic time where you do that. One, that would be really weird. Uh, two, I don't think it would be beneficial. And three, I think it would take way too long because um, some of y'all are really messed up people. So I'm not telling you to do that. But what I am saying is that man, we have to begin confessing it to others. See, sin's not just about stopping doing something. That's not the goal. If you're, if, if you're a former student in my ministry, you know how I used to address sin. Somebody would come to me and they'd be like, Drew, I struggle, I'm struggling with that, and I'd be like, well, quit. Stop, right? That, but what I realize is that's not the goal. The goal isn't just stopping. That's part of it, obviously. You can't just continue to do it and expect to, to, to be better. The goal is to walk in freedom from sin where that sin has no power over your life, where you're not submitting to it in any way so why do we confess to other people? Because it's a part of the healing process. Well, how do we do this? Number one, we let others into our lives. James 5, 13 through 16. It says, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? Sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Underline that if you're taking notes this morning. If you, if you committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Sounds like it's a done deal, but James continues. Look at, look at verse 16. He continues that thought and he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I don't fully understand this. I'm like, why can't I just pray to God and he just fix me? But he says, no, 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 that's not the end of it. Confession of your sin isn't just the end of it. We have to confess to each other because that's a part of the process so that you may be healed. While I fully believe that God is the one who does the healing in our life. When we have sin in our life, God's the one who forgives us. He's the one who heals us. This is where we play an active role in addressing sin in our life, not a passive role. We cannot produce the healing. I'm about to have surgery in a couple weeks. I had surgery at the end of the year. I'm about to have another one to have a hernia repaired while I'm going to have that surgery, I have to trust this, this doctor to do the surgery, right? I'm not about to repair the hernia on my own. That would be dangerous uh, at best, right? I'm trusting this doctor, but I do have a part to play. What part do I play? i got to do all the pre-op stuff. I need to show up on time. And I need to do all the pre-op stuff or the post-op stuff, right? There's, there, I have actions uh, before, during, and, and after. I play a role in that process. I don't do the healing I don't do the surgery, but I am a part of the work. So we have to be a part of the work. And to do that, we have to be willing to let other people into our life. But number two, we have to trust them. Once they're in our life, we have to trust them with the details of our life. It's not enough just to have people around you. You gotta trust them with the details of your life. And so what, what's that look like? Well, we have to let them in close enough that we can, we can vet their trustworthiness. What I'm not telling you to do today is run around and tell everybody about sin in your life. I actually think that that would be destructive in many ways. What I am telling you to do is find some people in your life that will support you. Uh, the bridal party uh, in, in a wedding is a perfect picture of this. You have a group of men supporting the husband. You have a group of women supporting the wife. And as they're sharing vows with each other, they're, they're committing to each other. They're, they're, they're vowing to love each other till death do us part These people that are standing on either side of the bridal party, their their role is actually to support, to hold accountable. Say, don't you remember that moment where you shared that vow? I'm holding you to that vow you made. For better or for worse, richer or for poor, sickness and in health, right? So I have that. I have a group of guys in my life that stood next to me when I got married to Christina that do that in my life. They know me. They know the details of my life. When me and her have, have an argument when we, when we have a, a, a disagreement, they're the people that I call, and I'm like, tell me where I'm wrong, <laughs> right? Because that's where this is usually the case. And I have I've guys who love me enough to, to look at me and, and call me out to be, that I can be transparent with. I also have people in this church that do this for me. I have a small group of people, people like Christian Moore and Justin Ratcliffe and Joe Irwin and Ashley Brewer and Carlin Willis and Emily, Emily Morris and Callum Smith and Hutchin and Haley Anderson, We can't just live in the dark and expect our lives to be godly and holy. You know what grows in the dark? Sin grows in the dark. We are called to live in the light as Jesus is in the light. And so we can't live in this this realm of where people only partially know us. We have to have people in our lives that know the details of our life. I locked eyes with Frank Khalil. Frank's one of these guys that I can sit across the table from, and he's going to call me out about things in my life. He's going to call me to the, to the expectation and the standard that a pastor should be. Why? Because he loves me enough to do that. You need people in your life that love you enough to call you out about that stuff. We've got to let them in. We've got to trust them with the details. You need people in your life that really know you. Think about this. How many people in your life do really know you? All of you. All the details. Maybe your spouse, you need more than that. You know why I I know you need more than that? Because Jesus needed more than that. Think about what he did early on in his ministry. One of the first things Jesus did, Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 5, John chapter 1, he called disciples and began calling these men to surround his life with. Now, did he do it because he needed to confess his sin? No. He did it because he cared about, he wanted people to care about and people to care for him. And you know what he ends up trusting them with? The details of his life. These guys, he he left it in the hands of 12 teenagers to take the gospel to the ends of the world. If Jesus can trust men with the details of our life, we need people in our lives that we can trust them with the details of our life. We need them to surround us. People that care about us and that we can care about. Last thing is when when we do that, we let them in, we trust them with the details of our life. The last thing that we need to do is we need to listen when other people confront sin in our life. This is maybe the toughest thing I'm gonna tell you to do today because we all, at some level, have pride. There's a reason one of the first words every toddler learns is the word no. We don't like people to tell us no. We don't like people calling us out. We don't like people telling us that we're wrong. That's said, that truth's an old truth, but we need it. 2 Samuel, David is a king of Israel. And up to this point, David's done some incredible things. I mean, you gotta think back on all the incredible, he's won wars, he defeated Goliath, he's uh, escaped and persevered, the persecution of, from Saul to him, trying to take his life. He hasn't been perfect, but he's done some great things up until this point. And so chapter 10 of 2 Samuel, it tells us about a war between the Israelites and the Ammonites, And the Israelites win. They they dominate in that war. I mean, they do exactly what they're supposed to do. They go out, they take care of business. But while that war is happening, what you need to see is chapter 10 happens here. Chapter 11 actually happens in the context of chapter 10. Chapter 11 happens during the war in chapter 10. You need to understand that to understand what happens in chapter 11 and the the implications it has over David's life. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 11, verse one. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Real quick, where was David supposed to be? He was supposed to be at war. He was supposed to be out at war. Where was he? At home. I'm fully convinced if David would have been doing what he was supposed to be doing as king of Israel, he would have never got himself into the mess that he did. But he stayed home. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite now David was hardy in the wrong place at the wrong time and he's about to make a wrong decision now there's a lot of speculation that we can have about this i've i've thought about this moment a lot i thought man do you, was that the first time david went up on his on the roof of his palace to find what he found that day was that the first i mean did he already know what he was about to go out and find How many times had he taken that stroll after that nap he had every day? When the the rest of the Israelite men were off at war, David's taking a midday nap and he's getting up and he's just leisurely strolling around his palace. And he found what he found that day. I don't know, we don't know any of that. That's all speculation. But what we do know, what I'm confident in is David knew the difference between right and wrong. He knew God's commands. He knew that it was wrong to commit adultery. And so what we find out is that David does indeed step into that decision. He makes that decision. He commits that sin, which actually leads him on a, on a path of more sin. He, lead, he makes that one sin. He makes another sin. It actually leads him to, to committing murder of Uriah, who was one of his best friends. Uriah was a, one of his mighty men who went out in the wilderness with him, vowed to protect him, vowed to, to, to be loyal to, to the king. And David's in this moment, he's living out that, can't we just pretend like this didn't happen? Can't we just sweep this under the rug? Can't we just get rid of this, this issue? I mean, in this chapter alone, David commits three, maybe four of the, breaks four of the Ten Commandments in a, a, just a, a really short amount of time. This sin is actually what derails David's kingship. David, the anointed king of Israel, If you jump back just four chapters to chapter seven, you see Nathan, the prophet, coming to David, and he makes this amazing proclamation over David's life, and he's like, you're gonna do great things to the point where he says the Lord declares that he will make you a a house, a dynasty of kings. Nathan proclaims that over David just four chapters before. Now, I believe God is referring to Christ when he's talking about a dynasty of kings, but he is making the proclamation over David's life. He's saying, David's going to be a part of that. But David, he's us. So many times that we have these amazing godly moments. We sit in church and we can worship, we can praise. Listen to teaching, listen to somebody talking about confession. And then in the next moment, we find ourselves at the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing. Ravi, Zacharias. Zacharias. It's a very famous Christian communicator, speaker, author. Passed away last year. And after he passed away, some really serious allegations began surfacing about sin in his life. Most of those allegations have been proved to be true. They've been confirmed in his life. And it has placed a stain upon his ministry. Everything that he did, every, any kind of legacy he was hoping to leave, there's, there is now a stain on his life because of the sin that he was hiding. There's a quote that I've often quoted from Zacharias. I actually didn't know it was his quote. I've been using it for years. And as I was preparing this week, I actually looked up this quote and didn't realize it was his quote until I I, I looked it up. This is the quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. I believe that's always true. It will always take you further than you want to go. It will always keep you longer than you want to stay and it will always cost you more than you want to pay. I wish he would have listened to his own words in light of his sin, in light of David's sin, in light of our sin. I think we can all agree that this truth is truth to be heard today. We need to understand the severity of our sin and we need to be broken about that sin. But that's not the end of the story for David. It's not like oh he commits a sin and you know God just like sends a boulder down and kills him. That's not what happens. In the next chapter God sends Nathan, that prophet who came and spoke over his life in chapter 7, he sends Nathan back into David's life. This guy who knew David, probably befriended David, probably knew some intimate details about his life because of his access to David's life. The Lord says, "Nathan, I'm going to send you back into David's life to speak a word to David about his sin. I'm going to ask you to confront his sin. I'm going to ask you to confront these these area this area or these areas of his life where he's missed the mark. And so Nathan does that. He shows up. He gives David a message straight from the Lord, and in the very next verse after he gets done confronting David's sin, he's like David, you're wrong for doing this. You're wrong. Da, 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 da. This is what it says. It says then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David and Nathan go on to have a conversation about that sin and the earthly consequences around it, which actually include the loss of one of David's kids. It's a hard, that's a hard reality for me to read about and fully understand in Scripture. But in the end, what we understand about this story is that David actually ends up having another child, Solomon, who became king, who continued the kingly line eventually unto Christ. Now, can I say that Solomon was a result of David's confession of sin? I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could make that. I can speculate at it. But what I can say is that for David to confess, he needed somebody to lovingly look him in the eye and call him out about his sin. Can you imagine, just for a moment, if David would have responded in that moment, how many of us respond? What if he would have got defensive? Do you know who I am? I'm the king. Who are you? Who are you going to tell me? Tell me what I'm wrong. I'm the king. I'm the anointed one. You're, you don't. You, you don't tell me what to do, right? We don't know that because that's not what David did. You know what David did do? He listened. He listened to somebody who was lovingly looking at them, saying, "What you're doing, what you've done, is wrong." And then he confessed. When we confess to God and to other people, it does something. It does something in us. And what I believe is when it does something in us, it does something through us. That's a spiritual principle that I believe holds true to every moment that we have with God. Every time God does something in us, it is never meant to stay with us. When God does something in your life, it's never meant to be be hoarded. It's always meant to pour out into the life of other people. And so when we confess and God does something in our lives through confession, it's always supposed to pour out into the life of other people. I'm gonna head back to Ezra chapter nine. Ezra chapter nine, he prays this amazing prayer. Go back and read it. Amazing prayer of confession. He's real, he's honest, he's broken. And in chapter 10, it says this, verse one, while Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. It shows me that Ezra's brokenness about his sin led to other people's brokenness about their sin. It actually leads to a moment of repentance where they say, we're not gonna be this way. We're gonna turn back on, the, on that, that sin. We're gonna turn our eyes and our gaze back onto the heavenly father and follow him. What if we became as broken about our sin as we are when our, when our sports team loses. I was telling this to Brandon in last, last service. I was like, man, what if, what, if, what if I dealt with sin in my life the way that I deal with OU football losses? When when OU loses, it ruins my day. I'm mad all day long. What if I got upset, that upset about my own sin in my life? What would the the kingdom of God look like if we all begin to confess and and repent from our sin the way that the Bible tells us to? We should be broken about the sin in our lives. But most of the time we go, eh, that wasn't that big a deal. Oh, I had pride in that moment, nah, God, grace. God's God's, gonna, he'll show me grace, he'll show me mercy. And we cheapen the gospel. We cheapen the death that Christ paid for our sin. The most expensive gift that we will ever receive. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what sin you have in your life. Here's what I do know is that all of us have sin. I can look around this room and I know every single one of you are as messed up as me. I said that earlier. The question is what are you gonna do about that? Have you confessed it to God? Have you confessed it to others? Maybe for you today, you need to confess it to God. Maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus and you need to begin that today. That first moment where you receive the grace and the forgiveness. Maybe for you it's a, a continuing of the conversation of just agreeing about the sin in your life and saying, God, let's get this together. Let's move forward. Let's, let's walk in freedom together today. Maybe for you it's, it's coming and it's, it's, it's laying your, your, your face down at this altar and you go, God, I, I don't know about all the sin in my life. Would you reveal sin in my life? would you reveal areas in my life that don't align with your word? Would you reveal those moments where I, where I live and I, I'm tempted by, by gluttony or I'm tempted by greed or I'm tempted by, tempted by pride or I'm tempted to judge somebody else because of the color of their skin or the way that they dress or the way that they act? God, would you convict those areas of my life so that I can be more like you? you? Maybe, maybe today you need to pray, God, would you, would you show somebody up, show, open my eyes to somebody in my life that I can be real with, that I can let in, that I can trust with the details of my life that will lovingly look at me and call me out? Because I would guess that most of you don't have that person that lovingly looks at you and wants the absolute best for your life. And they're willing to enter into a tough conversation because they, they want to see you walk in freedom. What I do know is that every single one of us have a step. We all have a step to take this morning. And so as the band comes up, they're gonna lead us in a time of response. They're gonna lead us in a song. While this song is playing, here's what I'm gonna ask you guys to do this. Maybe the idea of coming forward absolutely terrifies you because you're like, what are these people gonna think? Maybe that's, that's exactly what you need to think to actually come forward and kneel at this altar and deal with sin in your life. Maybe as a parent, you need to bring your child up here and you need to show them what, what confessing to God looks like and being that example with your kid. Maybe you need to lean over to your spouse and you need to say, hey, what I did was wrong last night, two nights ago, th- last week. Some of y'all are struggling in your marriage, and I, here's, I, I don't know all the details, but I do know that it's related to sin. Selfishness probably on one side or the other. Maybe on both. And come before the Lord. Let's get real. Let's get honest this morning about sin. Here's what I can promise you. If you you decide to let God do what he does and you enter into a time of brokenness, what I promise you is God will meet you in that moment every single time. He doesn't stand up in here and be like, oh, man, this person's so messed up. I wish they would just figure it out. Which is my response. You know what he does? He kneels beside you. His heart breaks with you. You know why? Because he wants the best for you far more than you want the best for you. Let's pray. God, I know so often when we enter into a time of response, it's so easy to just stay stagnant to sit in our seat to put our hands in our pockets and think three minutes and this is over (laughs) three minutes and I'm going to lunch three minutes and I can move past this I don't have to deal with any awkwardness I don't have to deal with anybody's judgmental eyes on my life but God what I know about times of response is three minutes can mean the changing of a life (sighs) I've watched it happen in so many people's lives and I pray that this moment would be that for people in this room Whether they they actually decide to overcome the fear and the stigma of coming forward and they have courage in this moment to to walk forward or or whether they just decide, hey, I'm going to make my seat an altar today. Father, I pray that we would all see sin, that we would see it, that we would agree with you about it, that we would let you do what you do. God, forgive us for all the moments that we miss it. That we don't see the situation like you see it. Have mercy on us. Have grace on us. Give us grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.